Well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping class. This semester we are going over apologetics and world religions, learning how to defend our faith uh, and also uh, to critique other worldviews, to understand other worldviews so that we might reach them with uh, the gospel. Today we're going to be talking about something that is a very, very popular idea just in culture, and it is what is known as religious pluralism. I'm going to use the term pluralism to refer to universalism, pluralism, and inclusivism. We'll break out what those differences are in just a second. Uh, But this is going to be this idea that there are many ways to God. If I can make it as simple as possible, it's this idea that there are many ways to God. Not just one, not just the exclusive claims of Christianity, which they will say are bigoted and, uh, you know, intolerant and these kind of things, Uh, but uh, rather there are many ways that uh, you can approach God. And so we're going to talk about those different forms, and we're going to discuss them. We're going to see what are some good arguments, what are some bad arguments, and it should be a lot of fun. So let me pray for us, and then we will get into this topic. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that though we don't deserve you, you have given us your son. Would you help us? Would you help us understand? Would you help us think critically? Would you help us uh, engage others in the workplace or in our families or in our neighborhoods? Help us be evangelists. Help us be those who love our neighbors with the purpose of eventually sharing the gospel. But I pray that you'd help us love them first. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's talk a little bit about religious pluralism. Let's start with what is called universalism, okay? Universalism. This is the idea that everyone will be saved regardless of what they do or what they believe. Let me say that again. Universalism is the idea that everyone will be saved regardless of what they do or believe. This is the idea that nobody gets punishment. This is the idea that nobody gets any type of hell, nobody gets any type of eternal judgment or something like this. It's the idea that no matter what you believe or no matter what you do, everyone has the same fate. There was actually an early view in the uh, early church called apocatastasis that was condemned actually by the early church. And that view taught that eventually everyone, even the devil, would be saved, okay? And that's a condemned position. This is not a Christian position, but this is a position that some people hold, right? Some claim to be Christians, some don't claim to be Christians, but it's a very common idea that everyone is headed towards the same path. Everyone is headed towards the same goal, and that goal does not include condemnation. Now, universalists will make the following arguments for this idea that everyone will be saved regardless of what they do or believe. There's six of them. First, they will say, God's love is incompatible with people going to hell. For more information on this topic, listen to Jeff's theological equipping from last week that uh, what they're basically claiming is the idea of eternal conscious punishment for people is contrary to the idea of a loving God who desires to save, who loves being around humans, etc. Number two, God's power is sufficient to restore lost humanity. They will say, wait a second, why does God have to send anyone to hell? Is his power not strong enough to save everyone? Could he not have elected everyone? Why wouldn't he have done that? If if it's up to his free sovereign decision, because nobody chooses God, and God is the one who distributes grace, could not have God just decided to elect everyone? It seems as though if you're not a universalist, they would say that you downplay the power of uh, God's ability to save. Number three, God desires all people to be saved, they will say. The Bible's very clear that God desires that none should perish, that that all might be saved. So they will say, you see Zach, or you see other Christian, or whatever, you see Christian, you see that universalism has to be true because God desires everyone to be saved. Why would God not accomplish what he desires? 
Or number four, people in heaven would be sad if their loved ones were damned. So they'll say everyone has to be saved. You see, if you're saved, but you know that your wife is in hell, you know that your kids are in hell, you know that your mom or dad is in hell, you're not enjoying heaven. You're going to be sorrowful for the rest of eternity. And so therefore, everyone will be saved, they will say. Number five, they will say that Christian exclusivism is intolerant. It's intolerant. It says my way is the only right way and all the other ways are wronged and the majority of people in all of time are going to be going to hell, right? This is a, this is a charge that's brought against us as Christians. Dear Christian, you're saying that God intended by not electing them, by reprobating them to send the majority of humanity to hell when he didn't have to, when he could have saved more than he did. Is that what you're willing to say? And my answer to that is yes. We don't know why God does what he does, but God owes no man salvation. But they will say that Christian exclusivism is intolerant. And then number six, they'll say that universalism has to be true because it is the only way to make sense of worldwide suffering. One of the strongest claims against God's existence is evil and suffering in the world. We did a lesson earlier this semester on uh, theodicy, God and the problem of evil. So what they will say is there is a way to make sense of worldwide suffering and it's universalism. If people will eventually have joy, And if suffering produces character now, then it seems as though evil actually has a purpose. It seems as though uh, suffering actually has a purpose. But that first view is called universalism. All you need to remember is that means that everyone will be saved regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they do, okay? Hitler will be saved. Some forms of this view hold that even demons will be saved. All kinds of weird stuff comes from universalism. That's universalism. The second one is actually the title of the lesson, although I'm using this term broadly. Here I'll use it more specifically. The next one is what is called religious pluralism, right? Plural means more than one. Religious pluralism is this idea that people can be saved through other religions outside of Christianity. They will say all or at least most spiritual paths lead to the same goal. So whereas universalism said, nobody's damned, everyone will be saved. Religious pluralism says, that uh, people do have to follow some semblance of religion to be saved, typically, but they don't have to follow Jesus, right? A devout Muslim who is following Allah and following the teachings of Muhammad, they can be saved. They're not following Jesus, but they're being good. They're following the God that they know. They're doing the best that they can. Or a Hindu who worships millions of gods, and they're, you know, a good person, and they help the poor, and they do these kind of things, that they can be saved, And so uh, I don't know if you ever heard this illustration, you you probably have, but that religion is like a bunch of blind men touching an elephant, which is just kind of a weird sentence in and of itself. It sounds like I'm setting up a joke. But anyway, uh, you've got this elephant and there are three blind men that are touching the elephant. And one person's touching his trunk and he says, you know, this feels long and it's, it's tubular and it moves around real easily. And another person is feeling the, uh, you know, the uh, elephant's ears and they're big and they're thin and they're floppy. And another person is feeling uh, the elephant's leg and he says it's like a tree trunk. None of them are actually wrong. They're just describing the, ele- the elephant from several, several different angles. And so what the religious pluralist will say is that the other religions are not wrong. They're just all describing the same thing, the generic divine, the generic real, capital R, real, from different angles. So Christianity teaches that you should walk in morality and that you should trust God and that you should love others. And that's their version. 
but also Judaism that denies that Jesus is the Messiah, teaches that you should love God and love others and walk in morality. So yeah, there's some differences, but really they're all touching the same elephant. They're all going towards the same goal. That is religious pluralism. So universalism, everyone saved. Religious pluralism, there are ways to be saved outside of Christ. And then, and I think actually this one is the most dangerous perhaps, because I think it's, uh, it's, you know how the devil appears as an angel of light? He's very tricky. This one is kind of tricky, so you want to be careful with this one. This is what is called inclusivism. This is what is called inclusivism. Let me give you a definition of this. This is the idea that people outside of Christianity can be saved, but they, they are still saved by Christ. They don't have to have a conscious knowledge about Jesus or even orthodox doctrine. A Muslim, for example, is saved by Christ even though he doesn't know that that's actually the God that he is subconsciously trusting, okay? So here's what this view says. That everyone who's saved is saved by Christ because there's no one else that brings salvation. This is a position that is not Christian traditionally, but there are some Christians who hold this and say that they're Christians, okay? So what this view would say is everyone who is saved is saved by Christ, He's the only one who can save. But that they, listen, this is important, don't have to have conscious faith in Christ to be saved. So what they will say is as a Muslim is worshiping Allah, the Muslim's actually being saved by Jesus. The Muslim doesn't know that they're saved by Jesus. They they don't know that that's really God's name is actually Jesus and these kind of things. But that's really the God they're subconsciously trusting. So what they're saying is that Jesus is the only one who saves, but you don't have to have conscious faith in Jesus. After all, if it's purely by grace, why would you have to do the work of repentance and faith and knowing correct doctrine and these kind of things? Why would you do that? Now, this has become a very popular view in some, and I say some, certainly not all, some Catholics post-Vatican II, and especially a Catholic theologian named Karl Rahner. Here's what Karl says, okay? A person who becomes the object of the church's missionary efforts is or may, uh, I'm sorry, let me read that again, is or may be already someone on the way towards his salvation. Notice what he's saying. Someone that the church is going to reach through missions might already be on a path to salvation. And someone who in certain circumstances finds it without being reached by the proclamation of the church's message, meaning they're finding salvation apart from this hearing the gospel message, And if it is at the same time true that this salvation which reaches him in this way is Christ's salvation since there is no other salvation, then it must be possible to be, listen to this next part, not only an anonymous theist, but also an anonymous Christian. What he's saying is that other people, even apart from hearing the gospel, even apart from missionary efforts, even apart from hearing the church's teaching, can be saved by Christ even though they don't know it's Christ. Christ is the only one who saves, but you don't have to know who Christ is to be saved. This is actually, I don't know, this book came out a few years ago and it was very controversial in pop evangelicalism. And it was a book by Rob Bell, who used to be a pastor and now is kind of like a weird self-help spiritual guru that's friends with Oprah and stuff. Uh, But he used to be a pastor and he wrote a book called Love Wins. And his thesis in that book was specifically inclusivism, okay? that people wouldn't go to hell, but it's not because he's denying Christ. It's because he is saying Christ is so loving and so powerful that eventually he will save everyone. That Christ's love and power is so strong that love wins over judgment, love wins over hell, and these kind of things. It was a form of inclusivism. And the 
and evangelicalism rightly rejected Rob Bell because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that how are you to hear without a preacher? That you need to hear the gospel message. That you must believe in Christ, must believe he died for your sins, must uh, believe in his resurrection, that there's actual content that you have to hold to actually know who Christ is. But that is inclusivism. So just as a recap, universalism, everybody saved, period. Religious pluralism, you can be saved by ways apart from Christ. Inclusivism, you're saved by Christ, but you don't have to have a conscious faith in Christ for him to save you, okay? Conscious faith in Christ for him to save you. Your life doesn't have to be, look, regenerated. You don't have to do anything different. Christ just somehow saves you even though you don't know who he is, you've never heard his name, etc. Now, here are some passages that these different groups will use. Notice that there are these people that hold these views that claim to be Christian. None of these positions are actually Christian, but there are people that claim to be Christians and who hold these views, okay? Here are some of the passages they will use. Romans eleven thirty two, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. They'll say, see, Zach, the Bible says that God has put everyone in disobedience so that he might show everyone his mercy. First Timothy 2, 4, it says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, wait a second. If God really desires all people to be saved, then you either have to say that God has failed or you have to say that all people will actually be saved. Okay? That's what they will say. These are not my arguments. Just as a reminder, these are the pluralists' arguments. John 12, 32, And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, there's the word all. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. They will say to you, now listen to this, because this is kind of a soapbox thing for me. When we teach about what is called limited atonement, which is something that we hold here at Parkway being Calvinistic, it's that Christ did not die with the intent to save everyone, that Christ died to save the elect. Okay? If you don't believe that, don't know what that means, we have a lesson on limited atonement. What those who are not reformed, what those who are Arminian will say is they'll say, Zach, you can't say that Jesus just died for the elect because sometimes it says he died for all. And they don't realize that they're actually making the same argument that the universalist is making. All doesn't mean every single when the word all is used. All can mean a bunch of things. It can mean all people in Christ. It can mean all kinds of people, Jews and Greeks and uh, male and female, slave and free, etc. It can mean all people that actually receive him. So you can't just use a phrase like all means all. That doesn't mean anything. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you can be a Calvinist or you can be a universalist, but what you can't be is an Arminian when it comes to these texts, okay? If you want to say all means all, then the universalist wins. God will literally save everyone. But instead we'll say all does mean all. It doesn't mean every single. You're equivocating on that term all. So, just to recap, what the universalist, the pluralist, etc. is saying is the Bible several times says that God will give mercy to all. Our Christian response to that is, no, 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 you have to look at what that word means in context, right? So when it says that God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, in context, it's all who trust in him. Or when it says that God desires all people to be saved, he obviously doesn't desire Esau to be saved. He doesn't desire Judas to be saved, who is a son of perdition. What do we mean there by all? Okay? Or in John uh, 12, 32, which we just read, when it says, uh, when Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, meaning he is the Savior. He draws all kinds of people to himself, Jew, Greek, whatever. If you want to be saved, he's the only option for humanity. 
Or in Colossians 1.20, where it talks about reconciling all things to himself, he's talking about putting the world back to rights and saving lost people who trust him. It's not that all people will be saved or that all, uh, even demons or something like that will be saved. So it comes down to, you need to understand, context is everything when you interpret the Bible. You can't just say one word means this all the time. That's not how words work. Words occur in context, and you have to see what the context is, okay? One of the most famous proponents of uh, this idea is a guy named John Hick. I don't often give you the names of just random theologians and philosophers uh, that are not major players. I'll mention Aristotle or Descartes or somebody who's huge, but I need to give you the name of John Hick because he is uh, one of the most uh, outspoken proponents of this. He passed away a few years ago, 1922 through 2012. And here's a quote by Michael Peterson on John Hick says this, John Hick believes that the various world faiths embody different views of ultimate reality, capital R and thus provide different ways to attain what is called salvation in some religions and liberation or enlightenment or fulfillment in others. To those who object, insisting that Christianity is unique because it was founded by God incarnate in Jesus, Hick replies that God can act through many individuals who are open to God. For Hick then, Jesus was not uniquely divine, but was merely one of many such persons. To those who point out that the different religious Uh, Different religions provide incompatible descriptions of reality, again, capital R. He responds that each tradition believes that reality exceeds our creaturely understanding. Hick explains that each person experiences reality as it appears to him in his unique cultural situation. In other words, each religious tradition conditions its adherents' understanding of reality and provides authentic and appropriate ways for them to respond to it. Now, that's a long quote. What does that mean? This is the idea. If you grow up, every religion, he would say, is searching for the same goal, and we use different words for that, whether it is uh, salvation, whether it is fulfillment, whether it is enlightenment, whether it is liberation, whether it is attainment. There's this longing in the heart of man, and we're seeking for some type of satisfaction, and your particular religion conditions you to only think about that ultimate reality from that religious perspective But really, you're all moving towards some sort of goal of the ultimate real, capital R, the highest inconceivable thing. So a Muslim is reaching for that when they are praying to Allah. Or a Jew is reaching for that when they are following the Mosaic law or they are reading the Torah or they are praying to Yahweh. Or the Buddhist is trying to reach that, even though Buddhism, strictly speaking, is not like the theistic religions. We'll have a lesson on Buddhism later. Uh, That uh, there is still this desire for nirvana, not the grunge band, but rather to uh, reach enlightenment, to get rid of want and to get rid of desire. And uh, so really, in a sense, they're all reaching for the same thing, Hick would say. So, a lot of information. Let's recap. Universalism, everybody's saved. Pluralism, you can be saved by different religions. Inclusivism, you can be saved by Christ even if you've never heard the gospel. Those are the three things we're talking about. And these are some of the arguments and some of the things that they say. Now, let's spend some time refuting religious pluralism. And I'm using that again as a term to refer to all three of these bad movements. And uh, so we'll go over a few of these. Let me give you the first one. The Bible teaches that there is only one way to be saved and it's through Christ. And listen, the Bible is not ambiguous here, right? This is not one of those places where you read one verse and it's weird and the Bible never mentions it again and you're not really sure how to interpret it. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear that you're only saved by Christ, okay? Let me read so many passages for you just to beat this dead horse. Acts 4, 11 through 12 says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You are not saved by Ganesh. You're not saved by Shiva. You're not saved by Thor. You're not saved by Allah. You're saved by Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? So notice that the only one who can be a mediator between God and man is the one who himself is fully God and fully man. He's the only one who can be a mediator. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, uh, does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice if you don't know Christ, God's wrath remains on you. John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Okay, you must believe that Jesus is he. He's the Messiah. He's the one he claimed to be. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. 1 John 2, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Notice that you don't get the Father without the Son. God is a trinity. You don't get to take one member of the trinity at the exclusion of the others. 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Are you getting tired yet about how clear the Bible is that you must know Christ to be saved? And if you do not know Christ, you can't be saved. Maybe you're not convinced. So here goes some more. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. Notice the Reformed theology there. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You go to judgment if you're not written in the Lamb's book by God from before the foundation of the world. If you're not one of God's elect who has uh, called upon Christ. Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In this section in Romans, people are talking about how you must believe in Christ to be saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. If you're a Jew, you need Christ for salvation. If you're a Gentile, you need Christ for salvation. But how will people believe unless someone is sent and unless they preach and unless people can hear the good news? So contra Rahner's quote that we had a little bit earlier, which just thinks that even apart from missionary activity, people hear the gospel just because they're following the light that's in them or whatever. This text is saying, no, you have to hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit regenerates you and he does not need your help. But what he does is he works through the preaching of the gospel. Second thing to mention, now listen to this. This is really important. Pluralism doesn't actually value each religion but rather destroys each religion's most important claims. So what's funny is people that are pluralistic, they act like they're very tolerant. They act like, oh, I'm so tolerant. I don't like exclusivism. They're not tolerant at all. They're saying everyone's wrong but them. They're saying every single religion that's ever existed is wrong, except their new weird man-made uh, pluralistic religion, that's the only one that's right. It does, their view doesn't actually show that all religions are right, but actually that all religions are wrong. The least 
tolerant view you can hold is to be a pluralist. There is to be a universalist. That's the least tolerant view you can hold. You're literally saying everyone's wrong but you, and that is not tolerant. Number three, pluralism is a contradiction. Pluralism is a contradiction. It claims to be the only worldview that's actually right while denying that there is only one worldview that is actually right. Let me say that again. It claims to be the only worldview that's actually right. My view that all views are right while denying that there is only one worldview that is actually right. It's just a contradiction. None of these other exclusivistic mean religions are right. My religion's the only one that's right. Oh, and by the way, none of the religions are right, including mine. It's just a contradiction. It's just nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. Listen to our lecture on absolute truth and a theology of truth for more info on that. Number four, this one's really important. Pluralism doesn't define what the quote real, capital R again, is that each religion is trying to reach. So when John Hicks says this, the real is infinite, eternal, limitlessly rich beyond the scope of our finite conceiving or experiencing. That's a quote from John Hick. What he's saying is, the thing that all religions are trying to reach for is what he calls the real, something that is infinite and eternal and we cannot comprehend it. Well, the problem with that is that that's not what some religions are reaching for. Some religions don't have gods that are infinite and eternal. The Greek gods of mythology are not like the God of the Bible. They're very limited, right? And, uh, or the gods of Hinduism. They're just like, they have human flaws and human traits and these kind of things. They're not infinite and eternal and beyond comprehension, right? So, so when he says that what we're reaching for is the real and then he defines it with all these terms, that's not even what other religions are trying to reach. To say it this way, when people say that all religions are just different paths to the same goal, here's my question. What is that goal? Is it worshiping one God or worshiping many gods? Those are different goals. Which actions are good and which are bad? Different religions teach different things are good and different uh, things are bad. Is reincarnation true or is resurrection true? Is there no justice for those that are evil? Does Hitler walk off and is scot-free? What about religions that believe in logical contradictions? There are some religions especially a lot of Eastern and kind of mystic religions that believe in logical contradictions. In this case, the real would also not be the real at the same time. And it doesn't make any sense. To say all different religions are different paths to the same goal ignores that they don't even have the same goal. In uh, Judaism, you have one God. In Hinduism, you have a bunch of gods. In Buddhism, you have no God. What are we going towards? You say, well, we're going towards eternal life. Well, not in some religions, not in some worldviews, there is no eternal life. Right? So it just it doesn't make any sense. This is why those, uh, those bumper stickers that say coexist are so weird for me because it just shows me that the driver of that car knows nothing about the actual claims of the world's major religions. They contradict. Yes, we coexist in the sense that we can be nice and live among one another. We should all be striving to do that. But the worldview uh, is contradictory. Eventually, one of us is wrong and one of us is right, even if we can still be nice to each other in the meantime. Number five, pluralism doesn't explain how non-theistic worldviews work, right? So when the, you know, if you're talking about a theistic religion where you believe in God or gods, or you're talking about uh, John Hicks' view of trying to reach the real, that doesn't take into account non-theistic worldviews. What if I am an atheist? What, am I, what real am I searching towards? What higher infinite thing am I? I don't believe in something that's infinite. I just believe literally that there's just matter and then you die and that's it. Or to push it further, what if I'm a nihilist? What if that's my worldview? A nihilist is not somebody who believes in nothing. I've heard people oversimplify it. It's to deny value claims. 
There is no good and bad. There is no true and false, that kind of stuff. They, they're just, they're nihilist. They have no real to go towards. It ignores that when we're talking about world religions, some world religions are non-theistic. They have no goal. They have no purpose. They have nothing they're striving towards. There's a bunch of worldviews out there, and a lot of them don't fit within this system. Number six, if no religion can really know, quote, the real, then how do we even know that there is a real at all? It seems like to me the one position you can't hold is John Hicks' kind of view. You can't hold this weird religious pluralism. To say nobody really has exclusive grasp on the real, the ultimate thing or God or whatever that we're trying to strive towards, how do we even know that that thing then exists at all? Why not just say, like the atheist says, that religions developed through cultural means of keeping people alive as an evolutionary adaptation to make us feel good psychologically, and then we just die and life has no purpose. Why not just say that? That seems more coherent than pluralism. Now, let me give further clarifications because I know a lot of things are probably popping in your mind as we go over some of these different topics and we're dealing with a lot of material today. So let me give some further clarifications on this whole idea of pluralism and what should we think about it as Christians, etc. So let me give you some clarifications. Number one, notice that the biblical passages above that we just read show that you are only saved by Christ and in no other way. You are not saved in any religion outside of Christianity. You're not saved by any other Christianity other than historic Orthodox biblical Christianity, okay? You're not saved in some sort of cult or something like that. Number two, now listen to this one. This is important. Against inclusivism, right? Inclusivism was the idea that you can be saved by Christ even if you don't know who he is. Against inclusivism, notice that the biblical passages above say that you have to have conscious faith in Christ to be saved. Notice how many passages, and you can see this in the handout, talk about you believing, that you call upon his name, that you confess, all these kind of things. They all assume that you must have conscious faith in Christ, not Karl Rahner's view that you can have, be a quote, like he says, anonymous Christian. Okay, Zach, you have to have conscious faith in Christ. Then number three, what about babies or those who have a mental handicap? What about babies or those who have a mental handicap? Let me be really clear. When we're talking about can you be saved in religions outside of Jesus, that is a different conversation than whether or not God can give grace to somebody who doesn't have the mental capacity, whether they are mentally handicapped or they are a child or a baby or an infant or whatever it might be. Those are different conversations. We have an excellent blog online that answers the question, what happens to infants when they die? Okay? I would encourage you to read that. It is the best thing I've read on that. I'm not tooting my own horn. Jeff wrote that article, not me. And it's a really good article. And basically what uh, he argues in that paper, and I agree with it, is that if God decides to save an infant who dies or someone who has a mental handicap who dies, which by the way, that seems to be very much within the character of God to, to give grace, then it's not because those people are innocent It's because God is giving them what they need. God is regenerating them. Just like John the Baptist is regenerated. He has the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, even though he's a little infant, that God is regenerating them. God is saving them. God, to some extent, is giving them some knowledge of the gospel that they might be saved. God is working in a a unique way there. But we can't take that unique exception and then ignore everything else the Bible says about normally how people hear the gospel, okay? So keep in mind, the question of whether or not you can be saved outside of Christ is a very different question than whether or not God can give mercy uh, to a baby or something like that who passes away. Number four, this one's a hard one. What should we think about those who have never had a chance to hear the gospel, okay? 
If you're somebody who has a heart for missions, you're somebody who has a heart for evangelism, you love seeing the lost saved, which by the way, God loves seeing the lost saved, then you might be thinking this. Okay, Zach, here's what you just said. You're only saved if you can hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. What about people all over the world who have never heard the gospel? What about those tribes in South America or in Africa who've never heard the gospel? What about certain Muslim nations where they don't have access to these kind of things, where they have not heard the gospel because Sharia law locks them down and they're not allowed to know anything about Christianity? What about people in North Korea who aren't allowed to go online and are locked down by the government and don't get to hear about Christianity? What happens biblically to those people when they die? Here is the answer biblically, and I'm just going to say it because that's what we do at Parkway. We just teach the Bible. The Bible teaches that if you do not know Christ, you go to hell. That is what I'm saying, okay? If that bothers you, then get off your blessed assurance and go do missions. If that bothers you, then do evangelism. People are saved through the gospel. You have to understand, even though these people haven't heard the gospel, they still fall under God's wrath because they still do what Romans 1 says, by nature, they know is wrong. There are people committing adultery all over the world who don't know who Christ is, but they know adultery is wrong. There are people all over the world worshiping things they shouldn't, even though it's clear that God is not made by human hands, and yet they still fall under God's wrath. So notice that you can still be guilty and still deserving of hell, even though you haven't heard of Christ. So the answer is those people go to hell, which is why we're so passionate about people hearing the gospel. It's why we want the message to go out. It's why we want you to make friends with your lost neighbors, okay? That is what I'm saying. That is what I'm saying. And it is difficult and it is hard, but that seems to be Paul's point in Romans by saying, how are they to hear if nobody is sent? Okay, Zach, what about people in the Old Testament? You said you're only saved by Christ, but what about people in the Old Testament? How are they saved if the Son hadn't become incarnate yet? Remember, Jesus has always been, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. He has always had his deity. His humanity, he does not take on until the incarnation, okay? And now today, he remains God and man and will do so forever. Now, how are Jews in the Old Testament saved? Zach, you said that you're saved by trusting Christ, but Jews in the Old Testament, they don't, Christ hasn't come yet. What do we do? Well, you need to understand that the New Testament is actually clear that Christ is the one saving those in the Old Testament, okay? There's a sense in which Jesus dies for King David's sin on credit, if you want to say it that way, okay? There's a sense in which he dies for King David's sin on credit. In the Old Testament, how were you saved? Answer, the same way you're saved in the New Testament, by trusting the God of Israel who has delivered you, who has provided a means of atonement, and who is sending a Messiah to save you. How are you saved in the New Testament? By trusting a God who has rescued you, who has provided a means of atonement, who has sent a Messiah. You're still saved by trusting in the one God of Israel who is either sending or has sent a Messiah, depending on what time period you're born in, but you're still saved the same way. Jews are putting their faith. When Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness, he's trusting a God who has promised to multiply his descendants, and through his descendants to bless all nations. That's a God who's going to send a Messiah. When we trust in God, we trust in God who has sent a Messiah and who, the, who is also sending him again at the second coming. So you, you see that people in the Old Testament aren't in the same position as like, let's say, a, a Hindu or a Buddhist or something today. People in the Old Testament are actually trusting in a Messiah. He's just a forthcoming Messiah for them. Number six. Is it arrogant for Christians to claim to have the only way to salvation? 
And here's the answer. Only if we're wrong, okay? First of all, most major world religions claim to have the only way of salvation. That's not just a Christian thing. Again, the, 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 the individual views contradict each other. A Muslim says you cannot believe that Jesus is the son of God. A Christian says you must believe that Jesus is the son of God, okay? So keep that in mind. But is it arrogant for Christians to claim to have the only way to salvation? The answer is no, and it's because we didn't invent this. This is something that God says. Let, let, me, give you, let me give you an example. Let's say you and I go into an ice cream shop and I order one type of ice cream and I say, this is the best type of ice cream. All the other types of ice cream are the worst. This one's the best. And I hold that very, very tightly, okay? That might be arrogant because we're just talking about opinions. Some people like chocolate. Some people like vanilla. Some people like strawberry. Some people that are right like mint chocolate chip, okay? I think that's the the, the correct view here. But it would be arrogant if I was like willing to die for that view, right? Because it's just something that's an opinion. Well, now imagine that you're going 100 miles an hour through a school zone and a police officer pulls you over and he says, you were breaking the law. And you say, are you arrogant? (laughs) Who made you where you could tell me how fast I can and can't go? He would say, no, 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 this isn't my rule. This isn't something I invented. This is actually the law. And I'm here just telling you what the law is and you've broken it. Christians are like that second example. We're not saying our God is right like we're picking ice cream flavors. We're saying God has revealed to us in his word the correct way to obtain salvation. And so we're actually being very humble. To submit to God and to submit to God's word is a humble thing. It's actually arrogant to be anything other than an Orthodox Christian. Because if you're anything other than an Orthodox Christian, you're the one making up religions. You're the one saying you're the only one who's right with your own fake man-made God. Christianity is humble because it simply takes what God has given us and submits to it. Number seven. Do we need to have each religion be equal and to be able to get along and dialogue with one another? Do we need to have each religion be equal to be able to get along and dialogue with one another? The answer to this is no, okay? Though we know we're right, we can still be kind to other people. I would encourage you to have Muslim friends. I would encourage you to have Hindu friends. I would encourage you to have Jewish friends, whatever it might be. I want you hanging out with people that are lost so they might meet Christ. You can know that you're right and know that they're wrong and still be nice to them. There's this weird view in our culture right now that says to disagree is to hate. That's what our culture says. What camp are you in? Are you in this group or are you in this group? And if you're not in my group, you hate me. And what we need is nuance to where we say, no, I cannot be in your group but not hate you. I can totally disagree with you and totally think you're wrong and totally think you're going to hell and love you like crazy, okay? That is what we should be striving after as we do evangelism. Number eight, How should we respond to those who say that since there are so many religions, we cannot know which one is right? You ever heard this? Well, Zach, you're telling me that your religion's right. There's hundreds of religions out there, even more if you go back in history with all people's weird views and cults and all kinds of stuff. How can you tell me that there's so many views out there, how can you possibly know that you're right, okay? Here is why that question is idiotic. And yes, I'll say it that way. Anytime there's a right view, there's a million other wrong views And that in no way takes away the rightness from the right view. Just because there's a bunch of options doesn't mean that one isn't better than the others. Let's use math for an example. If I get up and I say two plus two is four, and you say, well, Zach, there's so many other numbers out there, there's no way we can know it's four. I would say, you're insane. Of course we can know it's four. We can look at two and we can add it to another two and we can have four. You know how many other wrong answers there are to what two plus two is? An infinite number. 
Just because there's a bunch of wrong answers that in no way takes away the rightness from the right answer. So don't fall into the trap when someone says, because there's a bunch of views, we don't know which one's right. Anytime there's a right view, there's a bunch of other wrong views. Okay, that doesn't take away the rightness of a view. Number nine, those who are pluralistic have a tendency to also deny absolute truth. I find this to be fascinating. I don't know that I've ever met somebody that holds to some type of universalism or some type of pluralism that doesn't also deny absolute truth. You see, we as Christians affirm absolute truth and we affirm it absolutely, okay? And it fits within our worldview. Anyone who is pluralistic ends up compromising on absolute truth. And when you do that, you've ceased to be a rational person. You've ceased to understand that when you make a statement, you can't just contradict yourself within the same statement, okay? Number 10, we as Christians are exclusivistic. We are not tolerant of everything. Let me say it stronger. Don't be a coward and lean into it. Tolerance is only good if you're tolerant of what's good. So let me say it this way. Tolerance is only a virtue when it comes to matters of things like opinion, when it comes to being nice to people though you disagree, etc. Tolerance of evil or tolerance of falsehood is not a virtue, it's a vice. If somebody was assaulting a child and said, you shouldn't be mad at them, but you should be more tolerant, how would you feel about that? You see, they're using the word tolerant in a very evil way. They're using it to mean tolerant towards what is evil, tolerant towards what is false, tolerant towards what is wrong, tolerance towards what will send people to hell, whatever it is. That type of tolerance we we need nothing to do with. We should be very intolerant towards evil. The good type of tolerance is where you're tolerant towards opinion and you're tolerant towards good things. And so just know that like most things, tolerance can be good or bad. You can love your wife, which is good, or you can love a mistress, which is bad. The love, right, I'm using in two different senses. The same way is uh, true, the same thing is true when it comes to tolerance. So keep that in mind. We as Christians are exclusivistic. Zach, are you saying that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and if you don't know Jesus, you will go to hell? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And that's what the Bible says. And that's what all Christians have taught for 2,000 years just until recently when everybody just decided to punt and stop being historically Christian for some reason, okay? But yes, that is what I'm saying. Don't be a coward. Lean into it. If people get mad at you, let them know you didn't set the rules. You're simply showing them how they can find salvation. If I could find salvation in a way apart from Christ, I would probably do that because being a Christian is not easy. I don't like it, okay? But I can't. It's the only way you can find salvation. And I know the places and things I don't like about it are just corruptions in my own heart, not because there's actually something wrong with Christianity. Lastly, you ever had somebody say this? You ever had somebody say, well, Zach, you're just a Christian because you grew up in the United States and had you grown up somewhere else, you wouldn't have been a Christian. You ever heard somebody say something like that? Here's what's really funny about that. Some people grow up in the United States in an atheistic household and yet they become Christians. Some people grow up in Muslim countries and yet they become Christians. Some people grow up in quote unquote Christian countries and they deny the faith and they don't become Christians. So that that argument has never been a good argument. But there's a philosopher I like, his name is Alvin Plantinga, and he uh, forever has taught at the University of uh, Notre Dame, and he's one of the top philosophy of religion guys in the world. And in responding to this claim, he says something I think is really great. He says this, suppose we concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco, rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would be quite different. But the same goes for the pluralist. If the pluralist had been born in Morocco, he probably wouldn't be a pluralist. 
Does it follow that his pluralistic beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief-producing process? It's a great retort. So what he's saying is, when somebody says to him, Dr. Planiga, you're only a Christian because you grew up in a Christian household, he's saying, well, wait a second. If you, a pluralist, had grown up in another culture that wasn't pluralistic, you wouldn't be a pluralist. But you still hold that you can be a pluralist, and I still hold I can be a Christian. Our beliefs are not dependent upon where we're born. Yes, in some cultures, it's easier to hear the gospel, but again, coming from a Reformed worldview, someone who grows up in a Christian family is dead to the gospel until God awakens their heart. Someone who grows up in a Muslim family is dead to the gospel until God awakens their heart. It's not like it's harder for God to save a Muslim with the gospel or something like that. Your non-believing children, your non-believing friends, your non-believing whatever are spiritually dead as are people of other religions. They equally need a miracle for salvation. God has to equally wake up their hearts when it comes to saving them. So just because we grew up in a certain context, that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not uh, what we're claiming is true or false. So those are some thoughts when it comes to religious pluralism. I hope that is uh, helpful. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, you can shoot us in uh, email, info at theparkwaychurch.com. We're happy to help you work through those things. Hope you guys are doing well. Let me pray for us and we will be done. Jesus, we confess that there is no way other than through you that we might be saved. We also confess that you're not just some conduit by which we get the Father. You yourself are God. When we get you, we get God. We get Father, Son, and Spirit by being united to Christ. And so would you help us? We love you and thank you. We ask that you would bless this time, that you would uh, give us wisdom as we interact with people of other worldviews and these kind of things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.